Psalm 43 is where we pick up tonight. Uh, we don't have a indication of the beginning of this psalm who has written it. You notice the first number of psalms we looked at together all the way up through Psalm 41 continually kept seeing they were a psalm of David, a psalm of David. So as we come to Psalm 43, we are not given any indication. We ultimately know, of course, these were psalms that were given to us by the inspiration ultimately of the Holy Spirit as all the Word of God is authored by. Uh, So we don't really know the context or the setting of Psalm 43. One thing we will take notice, some people believe that Psalm 43 actually could have been sort of an addendum or even actually just a running part of Psalm 42. Uh, And the reason being, if you notice at the end of Psalm 43, you get this same refrain that showed up in Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God for I shall yet praise him the help of my countenance. Now, uh, it's likely it could be connected to Psalm 42 and the same events were going on, or it's likely that it could be a completely detached psalm and and stand alone. I tend to believe uh, my own personal conviction that it's a completely separate psalm in an isolated situation uh, that the psalmist was writing about, but just experiencing some of the same thoughts and feelings at a different stage of life as we all can. But he begins this psalm, the The writer does by asking, notice, first of all, for God's vindication. He says there in verse 1 to us, vindicate me, O God. The idea is declare me righteous or or prove me innocent. Prove me as the one that's right in the midst of these things. And he says, and plead my cause against, he says, an ungodly nation. Oh, he says, deliver me from the deceitful and the unjust man. So you can tell the thing that is troubling the heart of the psalmist as he writes these things is he finds himself in the midst of a world that is continuing to just become more dark morally. It's continuing to be filled with more lies and deception. He mentions the deceitful and the unjust or the unfair, unrighteous man. And so the psalmist is struggling with, he's vexed in his spirit, you might say, over the reality of living, as he says there in verse 1, in the midst of an ungodly nation. Uh, And that can be very vexing. You know, it's interesting, we even read in the New Testament regarding Lot, who, remember, decided to hang out in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, this very immoral, defiled uh, location geographically where there was just rampant, uh, aggressive homosexuality and just brutal violence. And I mean, I mean, the, the, the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah was incredibly filthy. Uh, and so we understand ultimately when we realize that God brought his powerful judgment against uh, those people because of how ungodly they had become as a society. Uh, and remember, though Lot had chosen to even go and kind of dwell in that area, uh, it actually tells us in the New Testament that Lot was, however, a righteous man. It actually says he was vexed in his spirit, even though he was living in the midst of those things. And I think for any of us as a follower of the Lord, that when we live in the midst of an ungodly nation where there's constant lies and deceit and people being misled and just unjust things happening, that is things that are just morally wrong they're unjust they're unfair i mean there's just uh, those kind of things happening that 
it's very difficult living in the midst of that, and we find ourselves kind of saying, Lord, please, would, would, would you vindicate us, and, and, and please allow our stand for righteousness to amount to something. Uh, don't let the ungodly, and you know, isn't it interesting, it's kind of sad when you think about it, that the ungodly that bring about an ungodly nation, they tend to be the most noisy people, <laughs> You know, when you look at a lot of the things that are being advanced very aggressively in our culture right now, which are leading to the moral downslide of our country, if you really evaluate the ideas behind the people who hold those convictions, whether it's this subculture, this group or that, or, you know, transgenderism or all these kind of things, they're very small percentages of a population. The problem is they're just noisy, they're just very loud and arrogant, and they want their voice to be heard. And to some degree, you, know, you have to wonder it sometimes. You know, there's that old adage, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing, right? Uh, and so we allow people who have ungodly ideals and agendas that are deceitful and unjust and immoral to have platforms and to speak and to take over our whole political system and to do all the things that where they're constantly the ones voicing their opinions. And sometimes as those who are righteous, we become silent and passive and very docile. And then we wonder why evil is so aggressively taking over. And in some ways, you know, there's, I think, a place where the people of God need to come to the reality that, look, you know, we need to begin to plead with the Lord to ask him to help us to be the salt and the light and to stand up for righteousness, I mean, we, we, we actually have something that's worth communicating, uh, that which brings something good and helpful and healthy to individual lives and moral boundaries and what's good and healthy for families and individuals. And, and yet so often we fail to communicate that which is good and right, and we let instead, whether it's through media platforms or anything else, those who are ungodly advance their ideals and their agendas and just convince us all that there's something horribly wrong with us if we don't not only tolerate, but we have to actually accept their ideas. And we're doing ourselves a great disservice to just stand back passively and just kind of embrace this idea. Well, not only do we have to allow you to have your opinion, but we have to actually accept your opinion. That's not true tolerance. Don't ever let anybody tell you different. That's one of my biggest quandaries right now. If you want to talk about tolerance, tolerance works both ways. Meaning that if you want to have those ungodly, deceitful, unjust ideals and ideas, this is America. You're allowed to have your idea, but so am I. So don't play cancel culture on me and tell me that I need to be quiet and there's something wrong with me. The reality is, is you're entitled to your ideal and opinion and belief, but by golly, so are we. Uh, and, and quite frankly, our ideals and ideologies and ideas and uh, perspectives quite honestly, have been around a whole lot longer. And they're a lot more consistent with the founding of our nation. This is the United States of America, as well as with the founding of even more than that, God's nation, what God established originally. Our ideals have been around from creation. Uh, men just started perverting everything afterwards as time went on. And so here the psalmist is, he's struggling with this. And I think in some ways we can certainly resonate, you know, feeling that same sense of pressure. Lord, vindicate us. Lord, Plead our cause against an ungodly nation. Lord, we need your help. And I just read this morning in my devotions in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, that great refrain where God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves 
and, and pray and turn away from their wicked way, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll hear their end. Again, God, God says that to his own people. He calls his own people to humble ourselves, to turn from our own wicked ways. If we're being conformed to the patterns of this world and beginning to get off track, and God says, if my people will take repentance seriously and will begin to humble themselves and actually start praying and seeking me to help, God says, I'll begin to act in that situation. But again, that, that begins with us doing that. And here the psalmist is doing that very thing, crying out, help, Lord. He says, this is an ungodly nation that I find myself in the midst of. And then he says, verse 2, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? So again, it shows again this idea of what he's feeling. He feels like he's been abandoned. The psalmist here feels like God has kind of set him aside. Sometimes we may feel like that. Again, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So he says, God, I, I not only feel weak and I feel like I've been abandoned. I don't sense your presence the way I once did. Now, again, ha has God moved? No, he just wasn't sensing the presence of God. And sometimes that's the quandary that we go through between reality and feelings, and right, that we sing that song, my thoughts deceive me, my feelings lie, they're always drifting like an ocean tide, and one of the greatest mistakes we make so often is rather than live by faith, we live by our feelings, and our feelings always get us in trouble, and, and, and if somebody lied to you as much as your feelings do, would you trust them? I mean, if somebody was constantly lying to you, would you always trust and do what they say? Of course you wouldn't. But yet we sadly do that many times and our feelings can even cause confusion and struggle in our own spiritual life. Sometimes we like the psalmist, Lord, I, feel, I just don't sense your presence. I feel like you've abandoned me, God. Well, God doesn't abandon us. He may be being more quiet or not letting us sense his presence, but maybe sometimes that's because he's saying it's because I want you to mature and walk by faith. And, and so sometimes God may not allow me to sense his presence in a way I once sensed his presence because maybe God's saying, I'm trying to let your roots go in a little deeper, son. And, and, and life's not always constantly this continual, perfect, experiential, wonderful thing. You know, the, 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 the honeymoon, just like in a marriage, there's a honeymoon and then there's marriage, right? And, and, and then you grow and you mature and you develop in a relationship. And sometimes God lets us go through dry seasons and peaks and valleys and all these different things, mountaintops, but valleys as well, because we're growing and we're learning to walk by faith and to trust the truth, and, and to realize that we need God in a personal, deep way. And that's why he says here in verse 2, Lord, he says, you are the God, notice, of my strength. In other words, Lord, I have no strength apart from you. The only way I can stand strong is if you continue to strengthen me. And the New Testament promises us all the more of the strength of God. The Bible says that, that God can strengthen us with might and power by his spirit in the inward man. And how wonderful that God can do that. At the end of Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul's praying for the Ephesian believers there, he, he, he prays for them saying that, that God may do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all we could ask or think. And then he says, through his power that works in us. A lot of times we quote that verse in regards to all the things we want God to do for us. God's going to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond what we could ever ask or think in the next car he provides for us. Right or we're in this and, and and the verse says exceedingly abundantly above and beyond what we could ask or think through His power that works in us. In other words, the context what it's saying is we think 
oh, I'll always struggle with this area. I just can't find the power to overcome this thing in my life. It's gonna defeat me or it's gonna, and, and God's saying, that's all you think I can do in you? I have power to work inside of your life to change you, to transform you, to give you strength, to overcome things above and beyond what you can even ask or think if you would just yield more and trust my power. And again, the idea there is a promise that God can do above and beyond with the powerful work that he brings in us by his Holy Spirit. That's the real context of that assurance. And here the psalmist is crying out, therefore, Lord, I don't sense your presence, but I know, he says, it's only by you and your strength that I'm gonna get through this for you're the God, he says, of my strength. He says, verse three, oh, send out your light and your truth, he says, and let them lead me. Don't let me be led by this world, Lord. The Bible says not to conform to the patterns of this world, right? We wanna be led by a different thing to be transformed by the renewing of our mind as God directs us. So he says, Lord, please, his plea, send out your light and send out your truth because he says, that's what I need to lead me. In other words, he realized, Lord, this is a dark world. So I need your light. And again, remember Jesus said to us, giving us that assurance. He said, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus knew that we would live in a dark world and that we just struggle with our own internal darkness as broken, fractured, sinful human beings. And so he said, look, here's the key. I'm the light of the world. And and if you follow me and just keep close to me, don't complicate things, just keep following me. I don't know what to do. Lord, I, I can't find my way. I feel like I'm in the dark in this area. And Jesus says, just follow me. I'm the light of the world. You follow me and you won't walk in darkness and I'll continue to keep giving you the light of life. And, and the Lord can continue to shine light into our soul. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians speaks about how the same God that spoke light into existence, he says, has shined his light, shown his light into our hearts to give us understanding about Christ and spiritual things. So God can illuminate us inwardly and send light into our soul to guide us. And one of the greatest ways he does that is exactly what we're doing this evening, right? Psalm 119 assures us that God's word is a lamp unto our feet, right? And a light unto our path. So one of the best ways for God to be able, beyond just the power and the ministry of his spirit, to shine light into our soul and to give us light for our lives the Lord can send out his light. And a lot of times he does it through the word of God. As you and I read it on our own and and as we hear the word of God taught, God sends forth his light so that we can be led in the path that he has for us. And it's through the light of God's word that we also find his truth as well. Send forth, he says, Lord, your light and your truth. That's what I wanna be led by. God lighting the way and his truth, not by error and wrong ideas or again, wrong feelings. He says, Lord, let those things be what lead me, not anything or anyone else. And let them, notice, this is what they'll do. This is how God leads. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. And then as a result, I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And on the harp, I will praise you, O God, my God. So the psalmist understood, Lord, if I let you lead me, if I let you lead me by your light and by your truth, then he says, I know what that will do. It will result in, in essence, he says here in verse three and four, it will result in me not living a self-serving life, but instead it will result in me leading a worshipful life. 
Lord, if you lead me by your light and your truth, then it will bring me, he says, into your tabernacle, right? That was the meeting place of the people of God. That was where the sacrifices were offered and where the presence of God was manifest. So he says, Lord, if I follow you by letting you lead me, you will bring me into a life of worship where I find myself coming to your altar. That was the place of sacrifice and worship, coming to the altar. To God, he says, my exceeding joy, and I'll begin to praise you, he says, O God, my God. Interesting, he refers to using, again, notice a stringed instrument, praising God on the harp. And what a wonderful thing to be able to have the access to use instruments, to be able to offer praise to God. And I love what he refers to to God as there in verse four, he calls God my exceeding joy, my exceeding joy. The idea is, is the psalmist realized, you know, the world may be very depressing and discouraging. And when you live in an ungodly nation, it's hard to kind of be glad about what's going on when you live in an ungodly nation, right? But he says, how awesome that when you know God, he can be your exceeding joy. You might not get much joy from watching the news or seeing what's happening in society, but the wonderful privilege of the child of God is that we can rejoice in the Lord and we can always have something to be exceedingly joyful about, if nothing else, knowing even the reality of that, hey, the world is falling apart. But for me as a child of God, everything's falling into place. And one day I'm getting out of here <laughs> one day, one day or the other, whether I die or whether the Lord returns, I only have better days ahead. And so the child of God can always have a level of exceeding joy. At least you have something to celebrate uh, those who don't know the Lord don't have the ability to celebrate those things. Now, as we come to verse five, notice he then says, here's this self-talk again. We saw it in Psalm 42. Why are you cast down? He says, oh, my soul. And why are you disquieted? The idea is disturbed within me. So again, he's doing some self-talk. He's, he's doing this soul coaching, as we talked about last time, kind of communicating to himself, questioning himself. He's saying, what's the matter with you, soul? And we said last time that the soul is that inward part of us, our, our mind, our will, our emotions. And a lot of times that's where the conflict happens, right? Because we're, we're trichotomous beings, just like God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're made in the image of God. We are a threefold being. We are body, soul, and spirit. We have a physical body. We have our soul, which is our mind and our will and our emotions and our intellect. And then we have our spirit, the innermost part of us that's eternal, where we commune with God. God is spirit and his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. But Hebrews 4 talks about how the word of God divides between soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and the intents of our heart. It's a discerner of that. And, and this is where the quandary comes is because we're such complex, integrated beings that sometimes our soul and our spirit are, are in conflict. And we're wondering sometimes when we're having these moods and feelings and thoughts and emotions and anxieties and depressions and discouragements. And, and, and it's like, what is going and, and the reality is sometimes there's this conflict going, is that of my spirit? Is that of the Lord? Or am I just, is it just my soul? And just my soul is struggling right now and I'm depressed and I'm bummed out or I'm just anxious or, or fearful. And, and a lot of times that's where the wrestling comes in our emotions and in our thinking patterns and all those kind of things. And so sometimes we almost have to kind of reason things out with ourselves, you know, and, and hear the psalmist, just like we looked at in Psalm 42 last week, he says, well, what's the matter with you, soul? Why are you, why are you cast down? 
And remember, we said the image there is literally from sheep and shepherding where a sheep would literally become cast. That was the, ter- the term that's being used there, where a sheep would get stuck on its back. And if a sheep would roll over accidentally when it was out in the field, it would get stuck on its back. And within 24 hours, if you don't turn a sheep over, it will die in that cast position because the gases will begin to fill its stomach. And that sheep is not strong enough or smart enough to just know how to do this. It rolls over from this to its legs. And once its legs go up in the air, it's in a cast position. That's called cast sheep or a cast down sheep. And it's stuck in that position. And it just does not know how to get itself back out of it. And that's kind of what happens to us, right? We get stuck in that position. And we feel hopeless and helpless and, and, and we're just falling apart. And we find ourselves kind of cast down like that. And we just feel stuck, right? I don't know, but you ever feel like you're just like walking through mud or the dark clouds like around your head and, and you wonder what's going on. And sometimes that's where we have to kind of talk things through with ourselves. What's the matter with you? I mean, you're a child of God. Why are you cast down? Yeah, you may be going through some challenging things, but why are you all disturbed within? Sometimes, why am I so disturbed today? And he says, Here's the antidote. What is it? It's not real complicated. Verse 5. He just says, hope in God. No matter how hopeless you feel, whenever you feel disturbed or upset or depressed or downcast, the best thing to do is just to start hoping in God. Lord, this does look hopeless. Or Lord, I feel completely hopeless. But I'm hopeful in you, God, because you can do things that are miraculous and powerful. You can change my circumstances. You can change my internal condition. I'm going to hope in God, he says. I shall yet praise him. Oh, I'm bummed out. I don't feel like praising him. It's not about how you feel. You just choose, I will praise him. You just start praising the Lord. Things don't have to be great for you and I to have a reason to praise the Lord, right? He's worthy of praise. So things can be horrible, but you just choose to praise the Lord. And the wonderful thing is when you do that, He says, God begins to become the help notice of my countenance. Your countenance is how your face looks. The idea is God begins to restore back a sense of peacefulness and joy and hopefulness. And he becomes the help of our countenance when we do those things. Now, let me just say before we move away from the psalm, take notice. And this is why I said I believe Psalm 42 and 43 aren't connected, but actually two different occasions. Because why does Psalm 43 have the same thing that Psalm 42 has in it? Not because God was going, I'm just running out of things to say, right? I mean, it's not like, I mean, can you imagine if God told us everything? I mean, how big the Bible actually would be. And he's going to teach us for all of eternity. So when something's repeated in the Bible, it's not there accidentally. When something's in the Bible more than once and God repeats himself, which I feel very encouraged about because my family always accuses me for repeating myself. And you listen to me teach and you say, you do, you always repeat yourself. But how do we learn? Repetition, 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 and through thoroughness, right? And so God at times, God himself repeats himself. He says the same thing more than once in these two Psalms. The same refrain shows up here multiple times. And God's saying, look, there's a lesson in this. Get the lesson here. Don't miss this. And I think God's saying the reason why there's a lesson in this is because God's saying in the same way that happened in Psalm 42, Whether Psalm 43 was two weeks later, two months later, two years later, 20 years later, God says, see, this is what happens. The same mood you struggled with last week, you might struggle with it again next week. Don't over-exaggerate it. You're just having a mood swing. You're just bummed out again. You got out of it last week. You'll get out of it this week. Don't overreact. You're just having a bummed out day. 
Don't instantly, oh, I need this. I have that. This is wrong with me. That's wrong with me. God's saying, no, you're just normal. People have mood swings. People get bummed out. People get discouraged. It's part of humanity. It's part of what we all experience. We're not called to escape life when it's hard. We're called to endure life when it's hard. That's how character's forged. That's how commitment to God is increased, right? Because when you realize you need help, you cry out to God. God, I need your help again. And so God here points out this same psalmist, maybe it's a different psalmist, with having the same feelings and struggles as we see in Psalm 43, or 42, excuse me. Psalm 44 tells us it's a psalm to the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, which were descendants of one of the worship leaders. Korah was one of those worship leaders in Israel. And Psalm 44 begins by saying, We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds that you did in their days, in the days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand. Now, this seems to be describing the conquest of of, uh, the, the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt and entering into the promised land, the days of Joshua, all the stories we read about and studied in the book of Joshua, conquering the land. God was driving out the nations. He says, but you... Them you planted, so God drove out their enemies. God planted and established them, giving them that land flowing with milk and honey. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out. For they did not gain possession, verse 3, of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, it was your arm in the light of your countenance, because you favored them. So the psalmist here begins to reflect upon how God brought great victory to his people, the nation of Israel, and the deeds of God, the idea is the works of God, the things that he did for his people to help them overcome their enemies, to deal with their problems, to be able to experience the blessed life and the promised life that God wanted for them. Notice he tells us in verse 1 where this understanding came from because these people who are writing this, they didn't experience it themselves. They heard it how? By way of testimony. And you see what verse one says there? We've heard with our ears, O God, the deeds that you did in the days of our fathers, in the days of old. And how do they hear it? They said, verse one, our fathers have told us. What does that indicate? That indicates that the fathers were fulfilling their spiritual duty as patriarchs in the family. The fathers were faithfully communicating to their children and to the next generation and even if not their own biological children, just to the next and younger generation, the older generation speaking to the next generation, telling them of the works of God, telling them how God delivered them out of Egypt, how God orchestrated wonderful works as they were in, able to go in and conquer the battle of Jericho and the walls that fell down and all the stories, again, the testimonies of how God worked and who God was and what God did for them. But this spiritual you know, explanation was coming from the fathers telling it to the next generation. They weren't neglecting passing on the truths of God. And this is what God instructed them to do. Remember Deuteronomy chapter six, God specifically told the parents that as they walked with their children, when they would sit and when they would rise and when they would walk, God said, just tell them about me. Speak about me. I love when you read Deuteronomy 6 in those first few verses there when it describes the role of the parent to communicate spiritual truths to their children. It's in a very informal fashion. 
It's not have family devos every Tuesday night, and whether your kids want to or not, it's happening at 7 o'clock. And no matter how much you fight with your wife because dinner's not done and she's still washing the dishes at 7, but family devos are 7 o'clock on Tuesday. And God says, no, just whatever you're doing. As you get up and drive in the car and walk around and do this and do that, God says, just make everything a teachable moment. Just as you walk and sit and rise and sit on the couch and sit for dinner and go here and go there, God says, as you're going about your life, just keep telling your kids about what God's doing in your life. And just in this very informal, organic way is just the fathers sharing with their children the things and the ways of God. And, you know, when that happens, something very wonderful takes place. Again, those children still have a free will, and they're going to determine what they want to do. But when a parent just shares with their children what God has done in their life and just keeps exposing them to the work of God and the power of God, that's the kind of stuff that those are incorruptible seeds that go into a child's soul that are going to bear fruit in time. You know, that's why in the New Testament, Paul even tells us specifically as parents there, in Ephesians 6, he tells parents that fathers, he says, to train their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And again, he could have used the word parents, but he chose to use the word fathers, putting, I believe, the primary responsibility upon us as fathers and as men in our homes to be spiritual leaders and to recognize this is our responsibility. This is our role. Not that a mother doesn't assist in the process by mentoring and being an example and sharing spiritual truths, but that the burden rests upon us as men. It's so important that we take that seriously, even as God commanded it to happen. And here the psalmist refers to it. Wonderful things happen when fathers embrace that role. And wonderful things happen when we can do our part to help younger men as they grow up to realize, look, this is part, you want to have a child? This is also part of what it's about. It's not just putting food on the table. It's also raising moral, responsible, godly individuals by telling them about the ways of God. That's your primary goal, really, above all else, especially from a parental perspective. The other part becomes the peripheral aspect. But here, the psalmist is appreciative of that. He says, our fathers have told us, Lord, how you drove out the nations and and even caused them to understand, he says, verse 3, that we didn't gain possession of the land, or they didn't, by their own sword, nor their own arm saved them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance. He said, what our fathers told us is it really wasn't us. It was all God. All along the way, it was the power of God. We participated, but he says, notice, the reason, verse 3, was because you favored them. You know, many times they were outnumbered, their enemies had much better you know, resources, but the reason they would win the battle was because the favor of God was with them. It was God's strong arm, it was God's light giving them direction of what to do and what not to do. And the idea there, verse 3, of experiencing victory by being favored is the idea of grace. Right? When we talk about grace, the word grace literally means, in a sense, undeserved favor. And that's the idea. He's saying, God, it was all your grace. Because you favored them, that's why they experienced the great things that they did, the conquest of the land of Jericho. He says, verse 4, you are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Now, you see the byproduct of fruit there? Our fathers told us all the victories you gave them and how you worked in their lives. And now what's the psalmist do himself in verse 4? Now he owns his own relationship with God right there with his words. In verses 1 through 3, he's saying the reason we know all these great things about the work of God is because our fathers told us. 
And see, the influence of a father is hugely significant. And so that's why his words in verse four are, God, you are my king. Now you're my king. You're now my God. I own you for myself because I want to serve the God of my father. So he now prays command victories for Jacob now. Give us victories in our generation, Lord. You haven't changed. You gave our fathers victory. Give us victories. You're the same God. Through you, he says, we will push down, notice, our enemies. Now it's present tense, right? You gave our fathers victory in that generation. God, now we have enemies too. We have battles that we have to fight. So God, command victories for us. And he says, in faith, through you, we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, he says. I don't want to be self-confident or arrogant to think, oh, well, I can overcome things. He said, no, what I've learned from my father telling me is that it's not about us, it's about you. And it's about what you can do. So he says, we're not gonna trust in our own weapons, our sword, our bow, but you have saved us from our enemies and put to shame those who hated us So in God, he says, we will boast all day long and praise your name forever. And then he gives that phrase, Selah, or think about that. Ponder that. Think that through the idea is there. You know, you could tell from verse 5 when he's describing the conflict with his own enemies. You're talking about something really personal and difficult because if you notice the language he uses in verse 5, he says, through you, we will push down our enemies. You're not talking about long-range artillery. If you're pushing somebody down, you're not even firing a bow and arrow from here to 50 yards away or throwing a spear. If you're pushing somebody down, you're about this far away from them, right? they're, They're two, three feet away from them. The idea is close encounter with your enemy. Through you, God, you're giving us the strength, hand to hand combat. The idea is we are face to face with these enemies and having to deal with them. But Lord, even without weapons, without our bows or our swords, Through you, we will push down our enemies, he says, for it's you who save us from our enemies. So there's complete dependence upon the power of God to give victory. That's what the psalmist is declaring. But notice the psalmist, as he says these things in his language, is also indicating that he participated in the process. Through you, we will push down our enemies. And I think that's an important thing that we need to realize as God's people There is this cooperative experience that happens spiritually, whereby do we have victory by the power of God? Yes, but we also have a free will and we also are to participate by cooperating and yielding together with God, right? The psalmist didn't say, Lord, through you, we stand back and watch you push down our enemies. He says, no, we get into the battle and we do something. We put our hands on our enemies. The idea is, We're participating. God, we're going to do our part humanly through our decisions and our efforts and our will. We're going to participate and do the human part, but you're going to provide the power and the strength to bring about the victories. And so important that we recognize that because if we just think that we can stand back and be passive and do nothing and God will do everything, that's kind of just idealistic. It's not very realistic. We have a part to play in the process. We need to engage right? We need to open our mouth and then God will fill our mouth and he'll bless and empower us with the words to say. 
or we need to step out and do things and practically, you know, do this, do that, do a good work, and then God blesses the good work, and God puts his favor and his blessing upon those things that we do. So we have to be willing to, to, to battle, and especially when it comes to our enemies, whether it's the enemy maybe of some sin against your soul that you're struggling with. You know, I just was speaking to someone on the phone yesterday. He was, you know, got my contact number from somebody else and, and you know, hey, this, this person, you know, told me to call you. And they just were pouring out their heart and sound like they were just a backslidden, struggling Christian. And so I spent the first few minutes saying, look, you know, God's gracious and he's going to give you power. And then I said, but listen, here's the thing. If you do nothing, six months from now, you're going to call me and we're going to have the same conversation, or it's going to be way worse. So I said, you need to choose. You need to choose this day whom you're going to serve, and you need to engage. You need to participate. You need to start making different decisions and practically put your hand and your foot and your mind into the process. God will empower you. God will give you the grace, but you have to participate in the process as well and yield to the Lord. And again, so important, especially when we're battling against an enemy that we can't think, oh, I'll just, oh, I just, I'm always so defeated. I'm always so defeated. Well, right, God wants to help, but we have to step into that and embrace and let God's power with us help us, trusting that he'll then provide the power. And therefore, when that happens, ultimately we can know where the strength and the power came from. God commanded the victory, and he says, then we can celebrate, verse 8, in God, he says, we boast all day long and praise your name forever. Now, Here's this interesting paradigm shift that happens right in the middle of the psalmist. The psalmist does all this celebrating and praising God. And now when he comes to verse 9, it's almost as if he begins to express as well some areas where he felt like there was defeat. It's almost like this conflict that sometimes there's victory. Other times we go through battles and struggles because look what verse 9 he begins to declare now, let's just kind of read from verse 9 down through 16. You could tell he's expressing some frustration and struggle. He says, but you have cast us off and put us to shame. Now, whether he's talking about this personally or maybe nationally, some believe this was the time when Sennacherib and Assyria was conquering the, the land because of some of the sins of the prior kings and that you know, Hezekiah and the godly kings who had come on the scene were still reaping some of the repercussions of prior administrations and the problems that were happening. He says, Lord, you don't go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. They're robbing us and stealing everything good from our nation, God. The, the other nations are exploiting our nation now. You have given us up like sheep intended for food. And have scattered us among the nations. You sell our people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those who are all around us. The idea is that other nations and people were looking now upon the nation of Israel and they were mocking them. They were mocking them like weak and foolish people in the nation. He says, You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the people. Isn't there an interesting picture there? A shaking of the head. The idea is that people were looking at the nation of Israel who had Yahweh God to help them, to bless them. They had such a great start and God's presence and power and moral fiber work was among them and therefore they were prospering. And now at this point, they're in decline. And it says people around them were shaking the head among people. It's going, what in the world? What did they do? 
that nation was so blessed. What, what? It's like you can picture the other nations going, what were they thinking? They're self-destructing. Why would they choose to do all? And again, just kind of like the shock and chagrin of these other nations shaking their head at a nation that once was strong and godly uh, makes you wonder what people are doing in response maybe to some of the things going on in America these days. Verse 15, my dishonor, he says, is continually before me and the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the enemy and the avenger. So the voice of his enemy was mocking and reproaching and reviling. And, you know, we certainly to some degree experience the same, but from a spiritual enemy, the voice of our enemy who does that very same thing. He's the accuser of the brethren. And and when he sees a weak spot, he loves to exploit it by reproaching and reviling and doing everything he can as the enemy of our soul to just make us feel horrible and to make us feel discouraged and depressed because he knows that's a great way to further weaken us even in the midst of our problems. Now, look what the psalmist says, verse 17. Here's his quandary. He says, all this has come upon us. In other words, it seems like we're being defeated, Lord. It seems like we're having a setback. It seems like we're not advancing and going forward. And he says, all this suffering has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we, we dealt falsely with your covenant. Now, maybe they were reaping the, as I said, the consequences of prior administrations who had turned away from God, prior kings, but they themselves in this generation who are still suffering the problematic effects of that, they're saying here in sincerity, this isn't our fault. In other words, we didn't bring these problems upon ourselves. This was the quandary of the psalmist as he's saying, we're suffering. And it's one thing if we knew we were suffering because we made our own self-inflicted trials, right? And when you have a self-inflicted trial, you don't have a whole lot to say at that point. Like, okay, I caused the problem here. I, you know, I dropped the hammer on my own foot. I made the mistake. I'm just suffering for bad choices. But it's harder, right, when you're suffering and you can't attach a specific reason for why you're suffering. But yet you're going through a hardship and you're going through a legitimate difficult time or a setback or something of that nature. And he says, all this has come upon us, but God, we haven't forgotten you. We haven't turned away from you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. He says, verse 18, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. So he's saying, Lord, we haven't turned away from you. We've been following you as faithfully as we know how. We've been taking steps, asking you to guide us in our steps and And our steps have stayed on track with your word and trying to follow your will. But, verse 19, despite us trying to follow your will and and keep in step with you, you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Let us go through a, a dark and difficult time. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? for he knows the secrets of the heart. So the psalmist's struggle was, Lord, we're going through really hard times and we don't know why. Ever happened before? Where you're trying to follow the will of God, you're praying, you're not doing, you know, flagrant dumb things, right? You're not making bad choices. You're trying to read the Bible and live the Bible and obey the Bible and you're praying and you're trying to honor the Lord. But yet, nonetheless, you go through a hardship or a setback or a painful experience or you feel like you're suffering more defeat 
in your life and you're thinking, why is this happening? Why am I going through these hard times? He even references there very picturesque in verse 19, you've severely broken us. Lord, why are you breaking me? Why have you broken us? Lord, why have you, why have you let us be fractured and broken? Well, look, the wonderful thing is, is something broken in God's economy actually increases in value. See, this is the quandary of, uh, and this is where faith comes into play. In our modern world, right, if, if I broke my cell phone, that just lost its value. If you break something nice in your house, value decreases or value diminishes altogether. In God's economy, because we tend to struggle with things like pride and selfishness and all these things that we wrestle with, in God's economy, brokenness doesn't decrease our value it actually increases our value because as God breaks us, God brings us to a place where we therefore become more humble and broken and dependent. And all of a sudden when God breaks us, then God can mend us and put us back together and rebuild us his way. And and the wonderful thing is God's light shines much better through cracked and broken vessels. So brokenness in the economy of God is not a bad thing, but sometimes it's a process that we have to go through. And he says, Lord, we didn't do anything wrong, but you've severely broken us. And he says, if we had done something wrong, certainly you would have identified it to us. Because he says, verse 21, would not God have searched it out if this was the result of some sin that we were suffering? He says, for God knows, look at verse 21, the secrets of the heart. Boy, that should be underlined if you got a highlighter. That's one to highlight there. God knows the secrets of the heart. There's nothing that's hidden from God. It's foolish to begin to hide things ultimately and to ever think we can hide something from God because he says God even knows the secrets we keep from others. God knows the very secrets of even what's going on in our heart. He sees it completely. He's fully aware of everything going on. So even if it's just a motive, God sees the motive. Even if it's a you know wrong heart attitude, God sees the heart attitude. He sees the depths of the heart. So the wonderful thing is that's why you can be completely vulnerable with God. And why you can really just pour your heart out honestly before God. You know, sometimes we almost like reserve ourselves, you know, maybe we're, we're struggling. We're feeling like, you know, we want to just really express the way that we feel to God. And we're thinking, oh, I don't know if I can say that. God knows it. God knows the secrets of your heart anyway. Oh, I'm really struggling. I'm, I'm really doubting God, but I'm not going to tell him. <laughs> really? <laughs> if you're doubting God, he knows you're doubting him anyway. If you're angry at God, he knows you're angry at him anyway. If you're upset with God, he knows you're upset with him anyway. You might as well just pour out your heart and tell him and let the breaking process and the whole thing unfold because when we're open and vulnerable with God, then then God can deal with us, right? And God can help us. So he says, Lord, I can't hide anything from you. If there was sin going on and that was the case, you would know because you know the secrets of the heart. Yet he says, for your sake, we are killed all day long and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So notice what the psalmist recognizes Maybe, he says, because it's not because of sin that we're suffering. He says, I I know that's not what's going on, but I don't know why we're going through hardship and setback and why we're just being defeated and we're, we're struggling and going through these really hard times. And then he says, maybe, look, verse 22, maybe it's about something bigger than me. You see what he says, verse 22? He says, yet for your sake, for your sake, God, Maybe for your glory, we're suffering. Maybe for your purposes, we're being broken. Maybe for your plan, 
we're going through a setback or a hardship. And he says, yet for your sake, we're killed and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. The psalmist was able to say, sometimes what we go through in our human experiences may not even necessarily be for our sake, because the reality is, is life isn't just all about constant personal happiness on earth. Not for the child of God, right? We exist for the glory of God. And the Bible says sometimes we even suffer according to the will of God, right? And, and like Jesus, who was, you know, the lamb that was slain, sometimes as we follow Christ and we share in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, as Paul talks about in Philippians 3, we go through similar hardships where we ourselves are suffering and it's for the Lord's sake. It's for his purpose, for some reason, or to give him glory or to work in a way as we suffer and we suffer in a godly and a good way and the world sees it. And it gives testimony that, hey, even if I have to suffer for his sake, I'm not gonna buckle and quit and walk away from the Lord. And that's where the, the, the proof comes about, right? Because it's easy to say I'm a follower of Jesus when everything's great. But when hardship comes and difficulty comes and you say like Job, remember Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Yes, I'm suffering. I don't know why I'm suffering. It hurts. It's difficult. This is a hard time and a hard season, but I'm still following Jesus. I'm still going to worship the Lord. Remember when the disciples went through a difficult time and people were turning away from Jesus because it was getting difficult and, and, and Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, um, are, are you going to leave also? Wait a minute, Jesus. Aren't you trying to keep as many people in the church as possible? Jesus said, no, I'm trying to keep everybody healthy in relationship with God. Jesus said to his disciples, do you want to leave too? It's getting hard, isn't it? It's not always easy cheesy being a Christian. This is the real world. Jesus said, do you want to leave too? Do you want to leave? And what do they say? Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Is there anything really better than following you out there? And they remain committed to the Lord. And that's why the psalmist, look, he just pours out his heart to God. In the midst of the suffering, he just says, very, very directly and awake, he says, verse three, Lord, why do you sleep? Arise, don't cast me off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Wow, that's pretty direct, isn't it? He's telling God what he thinks there. But, you know, God has big shoulders. He can handle our humanity. Lord, I feel like you're hiding your face that you don't see we're afflicted and oppressed for our soul is bowed down to the dust, Lord. Our body clings to the ground. He cries out, arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Lord, please, he says, arise, awaken. I feel like you're in a slumber in my life, Lord. Arise and awaken. Come and show your power, Lord. Show yourself off. Show your strength. Help me, lest people question who I am or my commitment to you. Now, before we conclude this evening, let me just read to you as we conclude tonight where this very verse from Psalm 44 ultimately finds itself from a New Testament perspective. Paul declares this in Romans chapter 8. He says there, if God be for us, who can be against us? And then as he comes through the chapter, he says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, suffering, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, as it is written, here's our verse, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things, in them, 
We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or principalities, powers nor things present nor things to come, height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus 